Welcome to Canaanbaum Podcast, Episode 14. I'm Tom Barthel, glad to be serving as your host for this episode. To start out with, we'll have Freedom in Christ by Pastor Mark Volk. Galatians 1, verses 3 to 5, forever and ever. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God wants us to ask. He wants to give. Thus, our urgent prayers for mercy, forgiveness, peace, our petitions are God-pleasing. God himself, in the Lord's Prayer, taught us to ask. Jesus teaches us to keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. But our prayers can learn something from the Apostle. And we might add, from the shepherds on Christmas night, who returned to their sheep glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Luke 2, verse 20. After all, it is the Lord himself who has come into human flesh to rescue us from this present evil age. That is the clear meaning of this text. In Jesus' days, the Jews, including the apostles, often turned to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. The Greek word for Lord, used here, was the name they applied to Jehovah, or Yahweh, since for centuries the Jews had been afraid to speak the actual syllables of the Hebrew name. That was a superstitious fear. Contrast that fear to our age, which spews the name uh, names for God as if they come from the sewer. Back to the point. Does not the God who hates sin and those who commit it, Psalm 5 verse 4, come into our world to save us, to save sinners? In contrast to this age stands the literal to the ages of ages, or in idiomatic English, forever and ever. Rescue from this evil world and time means an eternity in heaven, ages and ages, forever. What does the Lord deserve for such a salvation? Exactly what the angels and saints already joined to give, endless praise, honor. And what shall we give him today? He needs nothing. Everything was made by him, John 1, belongs to him. Still, he desires our praise the honor due him. Let us join Paul and begin our forever of praise now, in this present age. If we do not always feel like praising and thanking him, let us imagine uh, that it is Christmas and we are returning to our sheep, to our ordinary and tiresome tasks, along with the shepherds. When we see who it is who comes into our world to save, when we admit our cold hearts, then we can begin to give praise for the forgiveness that lasts forever and ever. Forever and ever, that is how long our praise and thanks will ring out in heaven. And we can begin that part of forever today. Next we have God's Word for You by Pastor Timothy Smith. God's Word for You, Job 3, verses 20 to 26. So far Job has cursed the day of his birth and wondered why he didn't die as an infant. Now a third thought occurs to him and his thoughts focus on why anyone who suffers is given life at all. He said, Why is light given those given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that, that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? 
Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Earlier, the devil accused God of hedging Job in with blessings. Now Job sees things differently. There is a hedge, he thinks, but it's keeping bad things in instead of keeping them out. The word light in verse 20 is identical with life, and we have recently seen that John's gospel equates light with life as well, if you've been uh, reading your Gospel of John in chapter 1. The light of men is true life, which we only have in Christ. Without it, without faith, life is a long scramble away from the grave. But Job is caught between his faith and his despair, wanting the peace for his body that would come only if death would come, but also knowing that true peace only comes from being right with God. It has nothing at all to do with death. So he asks, when God hedges a man in, how can he know which way to go? In verse 21, Job describes those who long for death that does not come. In, in Revelation 9.6, this is used as a description of those who suffer because of the stinging lies of the devil during the last days of the world. During those days, men will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. On the surface, these questions from Job seem philosophical, the words of a concerned man for those who suffer. But Job isn't talking about anybody except himself. Verses 24 and 25. For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. He has come to the end of his argument. He's at the end of his rope. He's hungry. But he's hungry for more than food. He's hungry for an answer. He wants water, but more than water, he wants his groans to be answered. Why has this happened? Why has he so suddenly and so meaninglessly lost everything? His herds, his flocks, his servants, his, his children, even his health, they're all gone. Job admits something that would be a breakthrough in a counseling session. What I feared has come upon me. Job was afraid of this all along. Being afraid of losing what God has given is failing to trust in God. Job was blessed, but he was afraid to lose those blessings, and now he knows it. What I dreaded has happened to me, he says. The last verse of the chapter. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Finally, Job ends his speech with the thought, I have no peace, I have no rest. There's a short statement like this. A poet would call it a couplet. At the end of all the speeches in Job, sometimes one verse, sometimes a little longer, this couplet uses a kind of parallelism called antithetic. The same thought is expressed in both parts of the verse, but in one part, here it's the first part instead of the second, it's stated in negative terms. No peace and no rest go together. But another way of saying turmoil is to say no quietness. Perhaps the poet who wrote the passage flipped the expected A, not B, pattern around to not A but only be. So the reader would get a sense of something being wrong, like a, like a dissonant chord in a song. Poetic effects like this are found throughout Job to give us a continuous, uneasy feeling of things not being right. When things aren't right, we need to look to the only place our help can come from. Our souls find rest in God alone. Psalm 62 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. 
just a little something extra. The word turmoil in verse 26, rogues, it only occurs seven times in the Bible, mostly in Job, and mostly on the lips of Job himself. Outside of Job, it occurs in Isaiah 14.3 as in a context of the Lord giving relief from the bondage of Babylon. Also in the Psalm of Habakkuk 3, where it's a description of the wrath when God comes from Teman. Note that the very next speaker in Job will be a man who also comes from Teman. Perhaps this is another small piece of evidence that the prophets were well acquainted with Job and the language of Job, calling to mind the severe images of this remarkable poem as they described God's plan for God's people. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's Word for you. The next segment we're glad to share with permission from Koine. It is from their DVD, Footsteps to the Cross. It includes a reading from the Passion History, along with the hymn, O Come, My Soul. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. soul your savior see nailed to your cross on calvary your pains he bears your thorns he wears that yours a crown of life might be Is yours, my soul, the sin, the shame, the cross, the nails, the thirst, the pain, in agony, his blood runs free, to write in heaven's book your
once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Next we have Passage and Prayer, shared by Pastor David Beckman. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear Savior, we shudder at the thought of what you went through on the cross, how searing your pain, how abandoned your soul. It's impossible for us to imagine what you endured to suffer hell's pain as the payment for our sin. How tiny and insignificant is our suffering by comparison. And yet, you do not minimize it. You see when we hurt. You have compassion when we suffer. Your heart goes out to us when we feel abandoned. For that we praise you. Give us a clear understanding of what you did for us. Awaken in us a confident trust that all is well between us and the Heavenly Father, because you stepped between us and his anger over sin. Give us true sorrow over the ways we earn the Father's anger, and strengthen our conviction that your boundless love has solved our deepest problem and filled our deepest need. Because you will never forsake us, lead us to a more devoted service to you, in all our relationships. Let your love flow through our love. May that love shout joyfully to the world that in you there is forgiveness, renewal, lasting hope, and unending life. Hear us, 
for your love's sake. Amen. When all is well. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Genesis 13, 1-4 All was now going very well for him. Abram, recall, had gone to Egypt because of a severe famine. Isn't it something that God not only brought him through the famine, but brought him through it with gains for himself? Recall that as he came to Egypt, he had lied about Sarai, his wife. Pharaoh took her for himself. He soon found out about the deception, and Pharaoh and all of his household were afflicted with serious diseases. We read the last time about the shameful rebuke this unbeliever had to give Abram for his lies. But recall how all that ended? Abram was given lots of gifts and treated well for Sarai's sake, and he was sent away. One can imagine, because Pharaoh now fears Abram's God, with all the gifts he had been given. So Moses records that Abram went up from Egypt with everything he had. The end result? That God had blessed Abram, and he became very wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. All is well. So did Abram reflect on his cleverness and how he got rich off Pharaoh? What do we do when we enjoy the blessings of prosperity in this life? Where does our help come from? The most amazing part is Abram, we now see, is blessed despite his wavering. Although he turned to his own devices, it was really God who allowed him to leave Egypt richer and better off. God has promised he would bless Abram. Could Abram look on all that he had and ever doubt that God's intentions were real? Could he ever think on the rebuke of Pharaoh and not humbly thank God for all his blessings? God certainly can and does bless us with many gifts. Perhaps, like Abram, a severe famine might come, or more likely in our case, a job loss. And it can cause us to relocate our lives and our families. But day after day he gives daily bread. Day after day he provides shelter and clothes. Like Abram, he sometimes blesses us with these things despite our own foolishness and despite our lies and our falsehoods. He gives us blessings by his grace. That is what Abram had all along. He had the greatest blessing of the Messiah, which we read about at the start of chapter 12. And we have that same blessing fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Whether we are rich or poor, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing through Christ. We are heirs of the promised rest and of his everlasting kingdom. And so, Abram goes right back to the place where he had last worshipped the Lord, publicly, and called on his name in Canaan. Recall that calling on the name of the Lord is indicating that he publicly worshipped God there. God was with him in Egypt. God was still going to bless him, though he had been shamefully rebuked for his lies. God's promise of blessing included more than his silver and his gold. This is a God worth worshipping. This is a God worth coming back to again and again, to his altar, to sing his praise, and to call on his holy name. As you find opportunity, return to the place where you last worshipped the Lord in faithfulness and in the truth of His Holy Word. Go back and join in public proclamation and praise. <laughs>
When things are hard, remember that He goes with you, and you will yet praise Him. When all is well, remember to give thanks and call on His name. Remember the promised rest. This last song is shared by Spark and Echo Band. Do you love me? You have been listening to Kanenbaum Podcast, Episode 14. We'd like to thank those who contributed their devotional materials in this podcast, and as well as those musicians who allowed us to feature their music. In this episode, we featured music by Koine from their Footsteps to the Cross DVD, a journey from Jesus' Lenten trip from Mount of Transfiguration to Mount Calvary. You can order this DVD and find more Koine music at koinemusic.com. And also, our last song was featured by Spark and Echo Band. Visit sparkandechoband.com. Again, my name is Tom Barthel. I was glad to be your host for this episode. Visit 
caninboundpodcast.com to find more information about the various artists featured on this podcast. We encourage you to visit a Wells Ministry location near you at wells.net. Thanks for listening. This is the truth. When you're young, you dress yourself, put on your own clean clothes. You go-